Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Your daily encouragement that God has the world in the hollow of his hand. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Good morning to you this day, the 14th of January, 2021. Uh, It's a historic day, and we're going to talk about that uh, in just a moment. I wanted to touch on um, a story that's not even really like a fully orbed story. There are these, sometimes there are these like throwaway lines. Um, People say things kind of out of the... uh, out of the cheeky side of their mouth while they're doing things. And a week ago, um, that happened when CNN commentator Chris Cuomo called Florida Senator Marco Rubio Mr. Bible Boy. Um, He was mocking Rubio's practice of uh, posting Bible verses on his Twitter feed. Now, Senator Rubio freely references relevant passages of Scripture pretty much all the time. I mean, if you're paying attention— um, during his interviews and elsewhere, if you're a student of Scripture, if you are familiar with the Word of God, then you hear him frequently uh, lace his comments and commentary with with Scripture. Well, uh, Senator Rubio responded to Chris Cuomo's mockery in this way. He says, the verses that I tweet are usually the ones chosen by the Catholic Church for, for that day's Mass. But the fact uh, that he thinks words written thousands of years ago are relevant to current events proves the Bible isn't just a book. Uh, It's the Word of God. Amen. Amen in all caps there, Um, which, you know, might might be a clever nod to the way the um, House of Representatives opening prayer ended um, last week as well. All right. Cuomo's criticism included a jab that um, Rubio's got a Bible verse for every moment. And uh, to that, I just simply want to say amen. I hope we have a Bible verse living inside of us uh, for every moment. I hope we are that saturated with the Word of God that no matter what happens um, in our life, in the days in which we live, uh, in our life together as a nation, no matter what happens, no matter what comes our way, I hope we are so fully saturated with the Word of God that what comes out of us um, is is precisely that. A Bible verse is brought to mind and then brought to bear on the concerns and issues of the day. Um, so where in the Word are you today? Let's, let's lead off this morning with a few verses from the end of the book of Jude. Now, by the way, the book of Jude is one chapter. The book of Jude is, uh, in its entirety, is only 25 verses. So it doesn't take very long to read the whole thing. Let me encourage you to do that. We're going to read... Um, Just the final handful of verses, picking up at verse 17. This is the word of the Lord. You must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. Uh, it, It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, 
waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear. Picking up again at verse 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forevermore. Amen. Yes, I am aware that uh, yesterday the House of Representatives voted to impeach the President of the United States a second time. The president uh, also spoke to the American people last night in a pre-recorded message calling for peace and a cessation of violence. He did so in response to credible threats exposed by U.S. intelligence services that there are some among us who plan havoc across the across the country uh, in the coming days in light of the inauguration of Joe Biden uh, to the presidency. So we're going to talk next about what we as people of God, as people of faith, must now do. And it's a call that includes a posture, and that posture is on our knees. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. To him who is able to keep you from falling, to present you before his glorious presence. To him who is able to keep you from falling, to present you before All right. Ordinarily, uh, at this point, we bring on Ben Johnson from the Acton Institute. Um, we need to be praying this morning for Ben. He is uh, he's sick. Sinisis, sinisis. I don't know something with his sinuses. Yes, am I have I got that right, Paul? And by the Sinitis, way, Paul, sinitis, welcome back. Yeah. Oh yeah. Hi. Yeah. We missed you. Oh. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So our friend Ben is um, is suffering this morning. And so we want to be lifting him up in prayer to the God who is the great physician um, that he would heal our good brother. You can check out what Ben has been writing because he has been writing. And those uh, those are posted at blog.acton, A-C-T-O-N dot O-R-G. If you just go to acton, A-C-T-O-N dot O-R-G um, and search for Ben Johnson, um, what he is uh, writing will pop up there. Um, there's one piece, um, the four cultural crises revealed by the D.C. riots that I think is uh, particularly particularly helpful uh, if you're interested in reading what Ben was going to talk about uh, in joining us today. So I'm going to pivot here and talk about the posture uh, of people of faith on uh, on this historic, historic day and in these historic days. We are I mean, we're always living history. Like, right, we're, we're always living in the midst of days that will be uh, tomorrow and in the years to come regarded as history. Um, but we have literally never been here before. We are at a very unique time and place in American history. Um, we've never been here before as a nation. We've never been here before as individuals. The United States of America um, has never before called out thousands of members of the National Guard to protect its own nation's capital from a threat of potential insurrection. That has never happened before. Nor has the U.S. Congress ever before impeached a president twice. It's never happened before. Uh, and so we shall, um, we shall one day look back upon these days and 
remember what happened. And others will look back upon these days and they will wonder, um, how did Christians behave in response to what was happening uh, in their nation, in this nation? So how shall we as Christians process and speak to this? I mean, I know we, we don't like to use the word unprecedented because it's overused, but this is a truly unprecedented moment. What are the stories that we will tell about these days? What will the stories be that are told about us to and by our grandchildren's grandchildren? So again, I'm trying to take a, a long view today. Will our grandchildren's grandchildren still live in a free republic known as the United States of America? It's possible that the decisions that we make today and how we process and proceed this point in history will determine the answer to that question. That's how historic the days are in which we now live. So what are the stories that we will tell And what will be the stories told of us to our grandchildren's grandchildren about who we were and how we responded when this great republic faced a very real and very present danger? Now, if those stories are told in a nation of free, self-governed people, still known as the United States of America, then one thing will have happened between now and then. Of this, I am absolutely certain. If you mark one thing down... Uh, Mark this down. If stories are told, if the stories told to our grandchildren's grandchildren are told in the context of a free, self-governed people still known as the United States of America, then I know one thing that absolutely is going to happen between now and then. There will have been a spiritual awakening and a wide-scale revival in this country. So knowing that one thing as a critical component part uh, of the future what do we do now? What do we do now? How, what could we possibly do to help foment genuine revival in the United States of America? Well, one thing about that I know, too. The answer is ardent, concerted, travailing prayer. I'm going to talk more about that in just a moment. We'll be right back. So if uh, 50 years from now, stories are told in the context of a nation still called the United States of America by a still free, self-governed people, those stories will, I am absolutely certain, include uh, talk of spiritual revival. There will have been one or one will then be underway. And so how do we as people of faith help to foment that today? The answer to that is at least in part, because God is the one who sends revival. God is the one who brings revival. God is the revivalist. It is by the power of the Holy Spirit that it happens and only by that power. Like there's no way to make it happen. But there is a way to um, participate in, in the bringing about of revival by God. And that is ardent, concerted, travailing prayer. So from the prayers of God's people that pave the way for God's action on their behalf, which results in what we now call the Exodus. So we're talking here about uh, Exodus chapter 2. You know, we see these ardent, concerted, travailing prayers of the people of God. Second Chronicles 20, we find the people trapped again, facing an overwhelming military force, and they are on their knees, gathered together, bowed down, crying out, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are fixed on you. Ardent, concerted, travailing prayer. 
this is not the first time that America has faced the need for spiritual revival. So if you want an exercise, a historical exercise to engage in today in terms of how did our forefathers uh, as Christians in this country, those 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 forebearers of the faith in the United States of America, what did they do when they faced uh, the kinds of challenges in terms of cultural decline um, and political anarchy that we face today? Well, do you remember things called the first and the second Great Awakenings? The 1730s and the 1740s uh, was the first Great Awakening. The second was Uh, about 50 years after that. So what was going on? Well, in the 1700s, there was a European philosophical movement that we call the Enlightenment or the Age of Reason. It made its way across the Atlantic Ocean uh, here to what were then the American colonies. And Enlightenment thinkers were emphasizing scientific and a logical view of the world, downplaying religion, demythologizing uh, everything, and and really suggesting that, well, if there were a God, he... um, he was like a clockmaker who just set it all in motion, and now everything was governed um, by what we would call uh, science and reason. So in many ways, religion um, was a formal practice, but not particularly personal. Um, church, decl- church attendance declined. Christians were pretty complacent. Um, they became disillusioned. Wealth and rationalism began to dominate the culture. And there was then this desire that that began in you know in in the bowels of people of faith craving a return to to holiness to piety and people prayed people prayed and the stage was set for this renewal of faith and so in the late 1720s revival began to take root preachers started altering their messages and reemphasizing um, very, very basic uh, concepts uh, like Scripture as the Word of God, Jesus as the only way to salvation, the Holy Spirit as an active presence, um, the need to turn from sin, um, what does holiness in life look like, the process of sanctification, on and on and on. And and we could use a renewal of all of those things today. Some 50 years uh, later, there was another great awakening You might remember that one as the time in which many of our colleges and seminaries and mission societies were founded here in the United States. Now, since then, because the 1700s was a long time ago uh, in our nation's history, not a long time ago in human history, but a long time ago for us, um, America experienced, uh, has experienced a number of other, what I'll call seasons of revival, and the church has flourished. You could point to the great fervor for sending missionaries from the United States to unreached people around the world from 1850 to 1950, the biggest missionary mobilization um, known ever, ever has, that has ever happened. The Jesus movement started on the West Coast in the 1960s and into the 1970s. Well, that was now 50 years ago. That's now 50 years ago. And there's a lot of people who see the days in which we now live as ripe for revival, Again, only God could send revival, a fresh awakening for the desire for God, a thirst to know him, a conviction of sin, an embrace of Christ as the way to salvation, a renewal of the spirit of the church, a restoration of the word of God to its rightful place. The culture changed by a change in heart and mind and life and a mobilization of Christian believers genuinely on fire to pray for, care for, and share with our neighbors a passion for God. We've talked about the need for revival. We've talked about our participation in a concerted chorus of ardent, travailing prayer. But what does that look like? Uh, Well, it's not formulaic. 
It's not like, you know, we pray and God sends revival. But I do know this. If we don't pray, revival is most unlikely. Complaining, complaining on Twitter is not ardent, concerted, travailing prayer. Complaining to your children or to your neighbors or to your friends is not ardent, concerted, travailing prayer. Complaint in the culture, about the culture, about other people is not equivalent to concerted, ardent, travailing prayer. Uh, It is to our detriment if we ignore the power of God and allow not only ourselves but our culture to languish. I want you to um, consider the ardent, concerted, travailing prayers of the Scriptures. I want you to consider how Paul talks about praying in Galatians 4.19. Oh, my dear children, I feel as if I'm going through labor pains for you again, and they will continue until, until Christ is fully developed in your lives. Do you and I pray like that? Do we pray like the Hebrews who groaned in Exodus 2 or Hannah who pled for a child in 1 Samuel 1? Do we plead before God like the psalmist yearning, yearning uh, out of desperate need? Do we pray like the prophet Isaiah describes himself in in chapter 62, verse 7, as giving God no rest? Do we pray like Jeremiah describes himself as clinging to God as a belt clings to a person's waist? We witness Jesus praying over Jerusalem in in Luke 19 and in the Garden of Gethsemane to the point of sweating drops of blood. Do we pray like that? Ardent, concerted, travailing prayer. The writer of the Hebrews describes Jesus as, quote, offering up petitions with fervent cries and tears. Do we pray like that? Do I pray like that? When the New Testament talks about praying in the Spirit, might be this what is meant? And if so, are my prayers in the Spirit in this way? Or more often, are my prayers in the flesh? Do I seed before God for revival, as Paul describes in Romans 8.26? Or like the first disciples prior to Pentecost? Do I pray like the psalmist in Psalm 74? By the way, Psalm 74 is a great guide to learning to pray. Ardent, concerted, travailing prayer. Psalm 74 opens with an awareness of a need for revival. It, 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 it pleads to God about what happens as a result of his apparent absence from a situation. It turns to an awareness of God uh, to whom we are praying. There's an, an, an open request for revival in Psalm 74, verses 18 to 23. It's those kinds of prayers to which I want us to turn, that we might then turn to God in ardent, concerted, travailing prayer for our nation. Oh, God. Oh, God, be alive today in ways that are not mocked. Oh, God, make yourself known in ways today that people will be unable to resist. We repent. We repent of our shameful self-sufficiency, and we throw ourselves upon your mercy. Gracious God, our lifestyle has often led unbelievers to insult and attack your very nature and your character, and so we ask you to rise up and defend yourself. Awaken your people to the reality of your presence in our midst, and in so doing, transform our lives into the character of Christ. May your life lived out in your church begin to demonstrate to the world your love and your grace and your mercy and the overwhelming power that you possess to redeem. 
Holy God, would you allow the kingdom principles that govern heaven to begin to be made manifest here upon the earth right now where we live in and through us. And we ask you to revive your people so that we may rejoice in you and demonstrate in our lives the awesome transforming power of Jesus Christ in his church. Will you pray with me, ardent, concerted, travailing prayer, that revival might be sent by God by the power of the Holy Spirit upon this land, and that these might be the stories that are told to our grandchildren's grandchildren. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back. So from time to time, uh, the writing of an individual um, who may not be well known to you catches my attention. And I think to myself, this is a person I'd like to talk with. And this is a person I would like uh, the audience to become aware of. So I bring you Dana Hall McCain. Um, She is um, a a mom. She lives in uh, Alabama. She's a freelance columnist who focuses on the intersection of faith and public policy and culture. Uh, She goes to First Baptist Church in Dothan, Alabama. She's, you know, frankly, uh, you know, a lot like you and me. So we're going to talk next with Dana Hall McCain about words like evangelical and does that still fit and talk about uh, a piece that she wrote on the sins of omission. What are those? We'll be right back. In order for parents to have a healthy relationship with their team, it's necessary to create a safe harbor where healthy relationships can develop. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. Relationships thrive in an atmosphere of unqualified acceptance. Even when your child blows it big time, you don't threaten or abandon him. He knows without question that your love is forever. Every teen has a secret longing to belong. He wants a relationship that helps him discover who he is. Your child realizes this sense of significance through relationships that will never end. First with you and with God for all eternity. So are you creating space for healthy relationships? Make your home a safe harbor from the storms of life. Learn how to get your team back on track. Get instant access to Mark's free parenting course online at freeparentingcourse.com. Dana Hall McCain uh, may be a new name for you. I hope it is a name with which you become familiar. I want you to follow what she's writing um, at AL.com. And AL, yes, stands for Alabama. Alabama, AL.com. She's a freelance columnist. She focuses on the intersections of faith and public policy and culture. Uh, She's a member of First Baptist Church in Dothan. um, And... um, well, she's an Alabama fan. No, 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 she's not. Oh, my goodness. We have a person from Alabama who's not a fan. A not a fan. Okay. So, Dana, first of all, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Well, oh, thank you so much for having me, Carmen. I'm thrilled to be with you today. So this has been a week, I'm sure, of great travail for you for many reasons, um, not least of which Alabama has won something like its 11,000 national championship. 
That seems to be the case. And, you know, I I feel like God is just stretching me in so many ways um, (laughs) in this season of life. And that is just another facet of the way the Lord is um, teaching me um, humility and chastening me as an Auburn fan to have to live with Alabama's continued um, overwhelming success and dominance. (laughs) Yeah, my husband is now my, my husband is now taken to saying, I mean, look, if you if you just want to be sure that your your team is going to win, just decide that your team is Alabama. That's right. I know. That's all there is I know. to it. Apparently. I know. That's all there is to it. Um, I know. Yeah. All right. So um, let's talk about what is happening in the world that God so loves, uh, particularly here in these United States of America, focusing in uh, again on the events of a, a week ago, now just slightly more than a week ago. It feels like we've lived uh, a year in the last week. Um, you wrote a piece that talks about Alabama's sins of omission. And I thought I was intrigued, first of all, by the introduction of um, or the reintroduction for many people of this conversation, not only about sins of commission, the things that we so obviously do, do and say that are expressly contrary to the word and the will of God, but these sins of omission, which are the things that we leave undone. Talk about Talk about making an observation about the sins of omission. How do we yeah. see that which we haven't done? It it's hard to do, and it and it's so easy to get get busy in our daily lives and, and fail to recognize the places and the times where God has um, put opportunity before us to represent, you know, his name and his kingdom. And we either sit silent or fail to act. Um, I, I feel like in in the United States right now, and particularly in um, the Christian conservative dynamic, it has become really easy to slide down a slippery slope of engagement with the process that is so focused on loyalty to a political party or loyalty to a particular individual or politician and become so invested in that that we are afraid to speak when those moments of conflict with God's word within our own tribe arise. We feel like that will um, fracture or weaken the cause of the party or of the individual. And so I I think that's one of the ways that we got into some hot water here in the last four to five years. Um, I had written about this previously, sort of, um, because it's one of the things that God was impressing upon my heart as early as 2016, um, that we had to be really careful here and really intentional. Um, And and I, I wanted fellow believers to really think about that as we moved forward um, with a president whose whose policy in many ways aligned with what a lot of us would like to see happen in our nation, but whose personal character and personality had a lot of red flags attached to it based on what we see in God's word about, you know, what what true godly character looks like. And so I felt like it was more incumbent upon us than ever to to be extraordinarily careful in how we handled this so that the gospel and and the cause of Christ was primary and that our engagement flowed out of that, not the other way around. Um, so I, I've been sounding that alarm bell for a little while. And I think what happens 
when we don't keep those things rightly ordered is is what we ultimately saw last Wednesday, where people's hope is entirely invested in the political process and their hope is entirely attached to political power, um, they will commit atrocities. They will do horrible things that have absolutely zero relationship to the cause of Christ. And they will do it while holding a sign that says, Jesus saves. Um, So I think it's a moment, Carmen, where we as believers um, really need to be prayerful and take a step back, possibly two big steps back, and ask the Lord to show us really what it looks like to represent Him properly in the public square. I I have observed that the events of now more than a week ago, January the 6th, provide a mirror into which we must look, um, and we must seek to find ourselves in that mirror. Where, where am I, either in sins of commission or sins of omission, where am I reflected in what happened? Um, yes. Or where am I reflected in what didn't happen? Um, because mm-hmm. the Christians who were present did not stand up and stop the mob. You're right. I, and no, and... I mean, nobody's talking about that. I mean, for, for, for all of the witness and testimony— you know, where people are saying the overwhelming majority of people who were present were there to, to be peaceful, were there to peacefully protest. Well, those people did not put their, did not lay their bodies between marauders and, um, you know, and people who were seeking to carry out uh, from the will of the American people something that the Constitution orders them to do. And right. so when, when we think about the sins of, of omission, on January the 6th, one of the conversations, I mean, every time, and, you know, Dana, you may know some people who were there, and I am hearing, uh, you know, from friends of friends, well, you know, so-and-so was there, and this is not what they experienced. And I am asking them, I am personally asking them, what did they do to stop it? Because if you right. if you did not do something to stop it, then your sin of omission was allowing it to happen. Um, and so, right. you know, I want, I want us to be... Um, I want us to be convicted about some things, and that would be one of them. The other um, observation, and I'll make this observation and let you, you know, react and respond to it. There seems to me to be a greater fear of cancel culture um, than there is a genuine fear of the Lord. Like there's a there's a greater fear of cancel culture then there is a desire to live in the freedom of a clear conscience before the throne of a holy God. Mm-hmm. There is. And, and I've seen this reflected in private conversations I've had with scores of people in recent years <clears throat> where we would find ourselves, and these are people who are, you know, committed, professing believers, people who I think sincerely love the Lord and, and want to do the right thing. But I would I would find myself repeatedly having this same conversation where I would I would point out to them some area where um, you know, maybe our shared political party or a leader that they were endorsing was saying or doing things that were not in keeping with the Word of God at all. And they would say to me, Dana, you're 100% right. It keeps me up at night, too, but I can't afford to say anything because to say something is political suicide. 
And so this rationalization takes hold that the only way I can be effective for the kingdom of God is to maintain, excuse me, worldly power. And to maintain my worldly power, I must capitulate to these, you know, these political forces around me. And if challenging, you know, lies that are told by people in power, even in my own tribe, is going to cost me my reelection bid or cost me my chance to win a primary in my party, I can't afford to tell the truth. And I think that's just tragic, wrong-headed thinking for for the people of God. We've we've got to have faith enough in the sovereignty of God to go to the mat for righteousness. And if it does cost us something in the short term, or maybe even for the totality of our lives, we will not have been the first followers of Christ to have paid a price for the truth and for the kingdom of God. And it's okay. It's just okay. We've got to get okay with that again. But I think in in Christianity, as I have grown up in it, and I have known it, we have we have set apart suffering for the cause of Christ as something that is not really for us to do. We we think that the only way that we can really engage with the world around us is to engage with it in a position of power. And that's just not biblical. You know, I, I wrote once um, when I was talking about this, this concept of, you know, being faithful to God and, and faithful to the scriptures. And if it costs us something, you know, we're, we're out of power sometimes. Um, and, and first century Christians would not have had a great deal of sympathy for us in, you know, 2020 United States of America. They they suffered all the way to death for the cause of Christ. And um, we're, we're asked in this moment to give so much less, um, but find ourselves often un, unwilling and unable to do it. And I think that is the that is the great area of introspection that we need to dig into. Yeah, absolutely. It's a completely different kind of Christianity than the one that... Um, uh, that, fa- that that frankly has been um, ginned up on what we have maybe called the religious right over uh, over a generation. How about we take a brief break and when we come back, let's just talk about the evolution of the term or the labor la- label evangelical, um, and and the question of whether or not it's a label that um, that we ought to still be carrying around. I'm talking with Dana Hall McCain, uh, and we will be right back. Dana Hall McCain uh, and I are going to continue our conversation. You can find what she is writing at al.com. That sounds for um, that sounds for Alabama. Uh, al.com, and she is a an opinion writer from a Christian worldview. Um, Dana, the term evangelical has evolved over time in terms of its uh, understood meaning in the culture. I am a person of evangelical faith. I believe in the gospel and its power. Um, but how does my evangelical faith engage in uh, in the public square where that term now means very different things to different people? It, it is a tricky moment with that label um, because labels often start out meaning one thing. And, and like you said, they evolve over time. So when we sort of flip back the pages of history and, and look at where 
evangelical as a label took on a great meaning and common usage for people across the political and religious spectrum. It was it was the 1980s where we saw the rise of the moral majority and leaders like Jerry Falwell Sr., who decided that they wanted to help impact culture for Christ by getting Christian voters more engaged in, you know, strategic political engagement. I remember as a little girl um, going to my grandmother's house one day and seeing that she had a Christian coalition bumper sticker on her car. And I was like, what is that? And she explained to me that she had given a donation to the Christian coalition and um, that they were helping people to know who to vote for. And so while at first blush, that is, there's nothing inherently sinful or wrong about that. It's another one of those things that has to be so carefully guarded and so um, rigorously rightly ordered um, that, you know, it it has to be carefully um, shepherded. And so over these decades since the birth of the moral majority, we have become discussed in the greater dialogue in the country more as a voting block than as the people of the Great Commission. We're, we're seen more as a wing of a particular political party than we are seen as people of a distinct, world-shaping, world-changing faith, the people of the good news. And so I think that's one of those, those places where I know God is calling me to, again, take a step back and think very carefully about the words I speak publicly and the way I engage with other people, you know, what is the primary thing they're going to think of when Dana Hall McCain walks away? Are they going to think about who I voted for or who I serve? Are they going to think about who I voted for or who saved me? Um, And so I think we as, as a loose, you know, ungoverned coalition of churches, of evangelical churches, are going to have to, as individuals, learn to think about that differently and speak about it differently in order to change the narrative there. Change the narrative is an interesting, um, that's an interesting conversation to have as well. Uh, I I think that there are a lot of people um, who have lost sight of the reality that we are characters in an unfolding drama called history, um, that history is intentionally moving in a particular direction, that God is sovereign over it, and that we are his in the midst of it uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so I do have a role to play in the unfolding narrative of this generation, of this nation, of the conversations uh, of which I am going to be a part today. I am not a passive, uh, unimportant um, I mean, I may be a, a, a tertiary uh, character, like right. I'm not. A, I'm not a headliner. I'm not. Uh, my name's not going to, you know, be in the in the credits at the end. I'm going to be, you know, one of the, you know, pe- listed as a uh, people in the in the scene or something like that, right? People in, <laughs> right? But but that doesn't mean I don't have a role to play. I think of those um, uh, those videos of flash mobs. You know, we don't know all those people's names, but every single one of them is significant in making the beautiful music happen on an, you know, on what was at one point an empty mall or empty square. Right. 
Yeah, I think um, what gets lost for us sometimes as believers is the value of our quiet, consistent faithfulness. You know, I think um, in a culture that so worships and esteems celebrity and worships and esteems power, we begin to be deceived into thinking that those are God's primary ways of of working in the world. Um, But I think that the way he works through us is, you know, through our day in, day out faithfulness, where we are living out and speaking the truth of his word to folks around us. Will that sometimes overlap with how we engage in political dynamics and, and, you know, other big ticket cultural issues? Yes, of course it will. And I don't think we should shrink back from those opportunities. But I think we get a completely distorted idea of how God is really going to um, carry out his will in the world when we get so invested in those that we we're missing the ground level everyday pedestrian opportunities to be the hands and feet of Jesus to the hurting and to the lost and to the broken. Um, and because that's, you know, that's where we see Christ. When we look at the gospels, he, he really was not seeking earthly power to, to affect change in the world and to bring the good news of, of, you know, of the gospel to the world. He, he often was seen binding up the wounds of, of the most vulnerable and the broken and the nameless and the forgotten. And so I, I think I'm, I'm learning more every day that God, even though I have something of a platform and I'm, and I'm speaking often to large groups of people. And, and I guess you could call that a, a type of power or whatever to affect change in the culture I think what he's showing me more and more every day is it may be the woman that I have the conversation with at the grocery store where he really mm-hmm. does the heavy lifting today. Absolutely. Um, and so um, I'm trying to just be faithful there. And I know that the Lord is um, gracious and compassionate to forgive me where I get it wrong. Um, but yeah, I, I think there's there's a way for us to back away from from our labels as we have typically thought about them and and use them in a way that is even more consistent with scripture and to have an even greater impact on the world, um, on the street where we live. All right. I know if you're listening, you already love her. Uh, Dana Hall McCain, sister in Christ, pray for her. She is, she's writing, she's writing today at al.com. Check out her opinion pieces. Um, correspond with her, encourage her in prayer. Dana, thank you so much for joining us today on Mornings with Carmen. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Carmen. You guys have a great day. Thank you. You too. Uh, War Eagle, I think is what I'm supposed to say. War (laughs) Eagle. We'll be right back. All right, so I um, I stomped all over our our final break, so I will just go ahead and close out the hour um, with you here. Let me let me echo one of the things that uh, that Dana said there at the end. Um, part of the challenge is that everything has become so politicized today, uh, and I am reminded then that all politics are ultimately extremely local. And at the most local of levels, you have a great deal of power. Um, you have a great deal of power in the conversations you're going to have today, and you certainly have uh, access to the power of the very throne room of God. What greater power is there than the power of prayer? Let us then bring it to bear 
Join me in ardent, concerted, travailing prayer today uh, that God would send revival to this land. We've got another hour of Mornings with Carmen up next. You're going to have lots of opportunities today to reflect the reality of who you know God to be to a world that knows him not. And so as you walk your faith out into the world that God so loves, um, I'm always encouraging you to do so in ways that honor Jesus. And that means that we are going to reflect what we know to be true of God in a world that rejects truth and knows not God. So just pause and consider that for a moment. You and I are reflecting the reality of God, the character of God, the gospel of God, the principles of the kingdom of heaven in the midst of a world that knows him not. And so... um, just as a just as an exercise for a moment, if you were trying to represent a reality that no one believed in, how would you start? Um, where would you start? How would you start? What would the quality of your life need to look like in order for people to be attracted uh, enough to give you an opportunity to talk about the reality in which you live? that's different than the reality in which they live. And you're going to say to yourself immediately, well, reality is reality. Reality is what aligns with, uh, with the truth. And I am going to remind you that at the beginning of the week, we talked with Carl Truman about um, the world today and the fact that you and I inhabit a reality in the presence of God that others do not enjoy. So let's consider that um, as we move forth. we got another... Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.